Yeah, it's fun being able to like use Go rather than just work on Go itself. I've definitely like found some parts of the standard library I'd never used before. I was like, oh, perfect, this exists. I never even knew about it. <laughs> Do you miss it? Well, I mean, I definitely ignore a lot more bugs than I used to because <laughs> now it's not my job to like stay on top of a lot of things. But I, I've still mm. been going to um, the proposal review meetings. So in that sense, I'm still involved. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnering with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at Changelog.com, Linode was there to help us, and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now, and Linode is still in our corner, behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode. They keep it fast, and they keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to go time. Your source for diverse discussions from around the go community. We've been polling the gopher community on our Twitter account, and it turns out that many of the unpopular opinions shared on the show aren't that unpopular after all. Follow along and share your opinion in the polls. We are at GoTimeFM. Will Brad Fitz break the trend and bring an actually unpopular opinion? It's time to find out. Here we go. Hello and welcome to this episode of Go Time. Shout out to our live listeners, um, those who uh, always engage us as we record these shows. Uh, you do make it more fun. If you want to be part of the fun, join us and go for Slack. Um, the Go Time channel is where you want to be. If uh, you also don't know about GoTime.fm, now you do. Go check out GoTime.fm to uh, get access to past episodes and all that good stuff. So I'm Johnny Borsico. I will be one of your hosts today. Joining me also uh, is uh, Matt Ryer. Say hello, Matt. Hello, Johnny. <laughs> I don't know how to interpret that instruction because it's too cliche to make the obvious joke. Oh. So I kind of flipped it and went meta a little bit. <laughs> okay. It's not worked though, either way. Ah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can with it. Great. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. But it's, it's great to be here. Thank you. Good, good. Um, but yeah, and, and we'll come back to you in a second because I, I have questions about your current weather situation. But yeah, that, okay. that we, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But actually, today we have a very special guest on the show. It is uh, Brad Fitzpatrick. Say hello, Brad. Hello. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. So... If the name sounds familiar, maybe you are a longtime engineer and uh, you've come across Brad's work, uh, maybe through LiveJournal or, or Memcached or OpenID or Perkeep. But a lot of us in the Go community actually uh, know Brad from his work uh, as part of the Go team, all right, contributing to the Go Center library and uh, being part of that really sort of a pretty incredible project, uh, if I may say so myself. So while we're here, we'd like to really kind of have a fluid conversation with Brad, you know, kind of maybe touch on a lot of different things, Go obviously being part of that, but I'm personally interested in kind of getting a, a sense of a sort of Brad's journey, right? If you don't know, Brad actually has his own page on Wikipedia. To me, that's like a pretty high bar. Right? That's like, that's like yeah. you, you made it. <laughs> yeah, anyone could edit that thing though, so... <laughs> So please do, guests. The most creative. <laughs> it used to say that I had like, you know, 27 Boston Terrier pups. And I was like, uh, I don't know. There was just like tons of stuff that was on there over time. <laughs> well, just random people adding, modifying it. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my impression of what happens on Wikipedia. People come in and get bored and modify things and other people edit it back out. But Yeah, suddenly the Earth's got three moons. <laughs> Oh, all right. So 
again, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna sort of uh, have a pretty fluid um, show. I, I am interested in sort of uh, getting a little bit of uh, background, perhaps the stuff that is not sort of obvious um, for those of us who can go to the to the Wikipedia page and to sort of uh, those of us who are familiar with Brad's work within the Go community. Brad, what what do we not know about you that's not out there? Let's start with that. Uh, I don't know. I I kind of tweet my stream of consciousness, so. Uh... I think most most of my information is out there somewhere. I'm not I haven't been too shy on the internet, but um, I'm currently living in a uh, a world of smoke on the west coast here, so uh, mm. it's kind of kind of depressing looking out and uh, seeing nothing. I've really left the house in a week. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really grim. It looks pretty terrible from over here as well. It's all over the news, of course. Um, yeah, I hope everyone out there's staying safe. But yeah, that's not so much about me as so much as the whole West Coast, but <laughs> it's currently on my mind. But I've also been vocal about that on the Internet. Tur- turns out that the uh, weather forecasters don't know anything about how smoke works or how smoke affects anything else or how smoke moves with the wind or anything. So I've been like checking the weather every day and it turns out it has nothing to do with reality. In reality, the smoke just stays. Mm. Oh, that- Is that just because it's so different, so unprecedented events? Yeah, pretty much. You know, when something like doesn't happen too often, they don't have models for it. So right. they just kind of assume it fits some other model and it turns out it doesn't. Yeah, but I'm having a problem, not quite the same, but it's very hot in London and we're not, We it was never very hot in the past, so we're not ready for it. Um, so it's just a bit unbearable when it does spike like that. So it, it's kind of, I think, all related, but yeah, changing times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Brad, how did you first get into computers uh, like when you first got into them, were you quite young when you were into them? Or? So my dad was an electrical engineer and he was working at a uh, a company that made memory chips in Texas. And as part of this, they would uh, like, they would test the chips after they were made. And if they, uh, if a bit in the memory chip was like stuck high or stuck low, you know, I had like, a, you know, a permanent one or a permanent zero somewhere, they would toss them in, the, in this like discard bin and uh, when the Apple II came out, my dad and some of his coworkers wanted to make uh, a bootleg Apple II, which was pretty easy to do at the time. You know, you, you can get all the parts at Radio Shack and just, you know, sit around. They sat around soldering things for like a couple of weeks. But the, the only real uh, tricky bit was the ROM, which, you know, bootleggers were passing around and stuff. So they had a copy of the ROM, but they just needed a ROM chip to burn it onto. And they worked at this company that made these ROM chips. So uh, they went to the discard bin and they just like, you know, grabbed a handful of them and they just flashed the Apple II bootleg ROM onto one until the, the stuck bits just happened to be in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we had this like a uh, bootleg Apple II that um, I always saw my dad, you know, screwing around on. And uh, at some point, you know, I was like, you know, five or six. He had taught me how, like, how to write basic, uh, write, like, you know, I think he wrote a program on paper. It was like, you know, 10 print Brad or print Hello World 20 go to 10. And he's like, what do you think this does? And I was like, well, you know, clearly it prints something on our printer. And he's like, well, no, actually it doesn't print on the printer. It prints on the screen. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, you're sassy for a five-year-old, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know what I said, but it was, you know, I, I do remember being confused that print didn't mean that it actually went to the mm. printer. Mm. But Yeah, that rings a bell. I remember that uh, same thing. Yeah, there's tons of things in computers that are just like, you know, not quite right, but you just accept it and you say, oh, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of examples of that in the standard library as well. We can talk about those <laughs> later. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that was like shade, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> no, I don't do shit. I don't even know what that is. I could do with some today, though. Writing a book on the standard library's history would be fun if, uh, mm. if I had time or books paid. But it'd be fun to like have a backstory on every API of the feature of like why we thought it was a good idea at the time mm-hmm. and w- what we were thinking. But yeah, you can't change anything. Yeah, it's interesting though, looking at some parts of the standard library where you can see like different styles oh, of yeah. Go code being mm-hmm. written. It's quite an archaeology to go poking around. There's whole different generations in there. And then when you make something new, you're like, well, I wanted to be consistent with the old stuff in the standard library, but which generation do I want to be consistent with? Yeah. So, so if you saw all the talk about the, uh, the file system proposal that's coming out now, it's like people are complaining that it doesn't have context in it. And we're like, well, yeah, but like, you know, context don't really work with most operating system layers. And also it doesn't exist in the OS package, so it wouldn't compose well with that. It's just like mm. so many trade-offs all the time. 
Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. the, we used to have this sort of a um, saying circling around the Go community. I mean, even I've, I've you know, sort of uttered it uh, on many occasions. Like if you really want to know how you know Go is written, look at the standard library. But now I'm kind of hesitant on, on saying that because, again, if somebody doesn't know that, okay, there's multiple generations and multiple sort of best practices and, you know, things you wish you couldn't, you know, you could go back and sort of redo because we no longer do things a certain way. It's kind of hard to tell somebody who's picking up Go today, like, hey, you just go read the center library, right? So are there parts of the Go center library rather than that? You know, you, you wouldn't point somebody to, but are there parts of center library today that you definitely say, okay, this is an example of how you should write Go? I wouldn't read like the runtime, for instance, or anything using unsafe or Seago is mm-hmm. like pretty much pretty nasty. And even like HTTP is um, just full of corner cases because, you know, the world of the Internet and browsers and servers are just so bizarre and so many edge cases that the code just gets unnecessarily complex. But there's little bits and pieces like when I was uh, relearning how like GIF and JPEG worked, I would uh, just it's easier for me to go read the Go implementation of some of these file formats or like, you know, zip files or something. Mm. Rather than read the spec, you can just go read the Go code and it's often easier to learn how a file format or a network protocol works. Yeah, I found that. I I mean, because I can read Go. I can't read whatever the specs are written in. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, all the RFCs have totally different styles too. So, yeah. So one of the sort of packages that that you were pretty vocal about was um, the NetHttp client, um, and I think at some point you even had some experimentation out there about that. Like, what what is the state of that? Where did you leave that? Uh, I mean, it works. I'm not doing HTTP three as people always ask me. Like, if, if I'm going to do quick, <laughs> I, I think I will leave that battle to somebody else with five or six years free. But mm. yeah, quick just gets very uh, invasive very quickly. It uh, it's nice in that it combines. TLS and uh, and HTTP and TCP all like together. So the layering is nice and the layering isn't fighting each other. But uh, it's just <laughs> you're now implementing like a whole network stack and uh, in your library. We've got a question here in our Slack channel from Johan Brandhorst, who asks, what's some tech that you're excited about? Um, well, I mean, I was I'm really into WireGuard lately, which is why I kind of... Uh, left Google to go, you know, work on WireGuard and making WireGuard fun and easy. So, mm. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I've always been, like, kind of so-so at networking. Like, I've been, like, interested in networking, but I never felt, like, super great at it. So, this is kind of a forcing function to make me uh, actually learn how networks work. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, for, for, for those of us who don't know much about networking like what is WireGuard and then by proxy like why why do you care so much about it you know in light of the work you're doing on Tailscale? Well so I always like fought networks a lot and then I was helping my dad set up uh, networking for it. My parents bought this uh, RV they're retired now and just kind of traveling around the U.S. or they were traveling around the U.S. prior to pandemics and wildfires and stuff and uh, they wanted to like my dad wanted to have monitoring on his RV. There's this uh, CAM bus that lets him control all the lights and fans and heaters and whatever in uh, the thing and also lets them see temperatures and fuel levels and what their black and water and white, you know, clean water is all like the levels are on all that, how long the generator's been running. So he wanted to build a dashboard to see all this and he wanted to see it from like anywhere in the world. So we like, we had set up this whole contraption of like, you know, Raspberry Pi in the RV and LTE modem and like all these reverse proxies and stuff. And then uh, I set up WireGuard for him and uh, that was just so cool and empowering compared to like the complexity of what we had been doing prior that uh, I just started playing with it more myself, like putting wire guard tunnels between things. But it can get pretty tedious to like set it all up yourself. So when I found out that uh, David Crawshaw, who was uh, also I'd worked with on Go, uh, was doing a company all around making WireGuard like fun and easy, I was like, oh, I want to go do that. So I had a bunch of friends that were all kind of like doing startups at the same time and I was getting some startup FOMO uh, like <laughs> thinking back to like the old days of uh, me doing uh, the live journal startup. So I want to relive the startup glory days. And how's that working out so far? It's, it's fun. I mean, I, it'd be nice if there weren't like, you know, a pandemic going on, but uh, I had like one good month of uh, working in person with a, another uh, tail scale person who was here in Seattle. But then uh, after a month, it was all working at home. So, oh, well. Which means I have to listen to my kids run around and scream and stuff, which is uh, not incredibly conducive towards working. 
You share sometimes some of the things that your kids say, and I find them to be hilarious. So oh I yeah, always, they're they're I constant. That on <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean they're constantly exhausting, but they're also constantly hilarious. So yeah, so it's worth it. Yeah, <laughs> it balances <laughs> out at least. <laughs> <laughs> great, that's a great advert for kids. There. Yeah, if you're if you're a young couple listening that are considering, yeah. not not sure. Well, it balances out, says Brad. <laughs> I, I'm told it gets better, but we'll see. <laughs> skeptical yeah um yeah so I was, yeah i wanted to kind of hear a bit of the live journal story you mentioned it it's a really kind of uh, surprising thing i think could you tell us a little bit about it and your involvement yeah so i had um i did like in high school i did like a summer internship at tektronics and one of my jobs was to like work on their corporate intranet and make like a company directory online in take a bunch of their tools that were kind of like, I don't know, not online at all. I guess they were like things that didn't exist and work on their corporate intranet. And as part of that, I was running on like some commercial Unix system. I was running like, you know, Motif as my desktop. And it was all like, you know, three button mouse and like classic old school Unix. And uh, I had access to run CGI scripts. And that was like my first time where I had like, you know, I, I had access to a server that made uh, dynamic responses to HTTP requests. And so I just went crazy and I like made their intranet do all these like, you know, dynamic things. And then uh, I wanted to do that myself. So when I, uh, the summer before college, I uh, started making my personal website have all this dynamic crap. And I, I got like a copy of Visual Basic and I made uh, the stupidest Visual Basic app, which was just like a, a single line text box that just floated up my start bar in Windows. And I could type into that single line text box. There was no, there was no button to like post. You just hit enter and you post. <laughs> and it just made an HTTP request. And you know, I I didn't call it an API for the longest time because I didn't really think of it as an API. I was like, I don't know, it just makes an HTTP request. And uh, so everyone like downloaded this Windows program, and there was no way to post on the web even. And then later, someone people started writing like entire paragraphs in this client. You know, they couldn't hit enter because enter post. So they would just write this like one wall of text. And I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't really put a character limit on that. But so everyone used it effectively like Twitter because they would type until they hit the edge of their screen. And then they're like, well, I'm out of space, I guess. I'll, I'll hit enter. Uh, but then at some point, people started writing like big things and wanting to do paragraphs. So I uh, put up a web page for people to post and made it a text area instead of an input box. And, uh, oh, now we're talking. <laughs> yeah. And for a while, we all ran the CGI on our, our schools. Uh, our school like gave us CGI access. So like we dropped a CGI file into our home directories. But then, you know, that was too uh, nerdy and complicated for people. So I made like a shared instance where people could create accounts. <laughs> and then, um, so then it was just like me and my friends from high school, my friends from uh, the dorms and college creating accounts. But, you know, their friends told their friends. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we're like, killing my little server and I'm begging people to send me money. You know, in exchange for people sending me money, I put like a little thumbs up next to their name on their user profile page. Yeah, it was just kind of like a... The original verified. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. You know, and then uh, people send me more and more money and then I raised their quota as another way to thank them, like gave them more um, user avatar pictures and stuff. And then at some point my mom was like, you know, you're like taking money from people, you know, you're taking money in exchange for goods and services. You know that's a business. That's you a business. Like <laughs> yeah, you have to like pay taxes and stuff. You know, and people can sue you and like take all your money now. And I'm like, oh crap. So um, she hooked me up with like a family friend who was a like a CPA, and he introduced us to like lawyer types, and we made it like you know an official company. So like I was legally isolated if you know people were people were jerks because you know people mm -hmm. are always jerks on the internet. No. Um, but, you know, so then it turned into a, like a company for, I guess, the whole time I was in college and a few years afterwards. And then I, you know, sold it to a company in San Francisco because I just got burnt out running it. It was just like nonstop stress. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. site was like constantly fall falling over. We went from like, you know, one server to you know, 150 servers or so. And so we had to like invent uh, load balancers for things and d figure out sharding, which like I didn't know the name for. The name didn't exist at the time. So we mm -hmm. called it something else. But uh you know, sharding users over database clusters and doing HA databases and doing HTTP load balancers and doing a distributed file system, like a, was it effectively S3 at the time, like for, for photos. But like, <laughs> you know, the site's constantly on fire. So you're constantly like writing stuff to like, you know, Memcache <laughs> came out of this because we were hitting our databases too hard. So, I mean, LiveJournal was good times because it was just like, 
it was fun goofing around and it was, you know, there's constantly something broken to fix. So it's amazing to hear all the different types of technologies that you had to kind of innovate uh, yeah. at a time. Yeah, that's a, it's kind of really surprising. But uh, yeah, and now, of course, LiveJournal, uh, it says on their website, they are now at version 427. What? So, <laughs> you know, that's great. Are they version numbers? <laughs> we didn't want to build all this stuff. At one point, we like went to buy, um, we needed like high availability, like file storage for like our images and stuff. Because, you know, mm. we had a bunch of machines that were like net booting, pixie booting, Linux and stuff. And we're like, well, where do we store state? Like we have the databases for like posts and stuff. But we didn't want to put all of our images in our databases because, you know, we were spinning disks at the time and uh, they didn't have much storage. Someone said, oh, you know, everyone uses NetApp. Go to NetApp and get one of their file servers or whatever. And so we talked to them. And we said, okay, we need a file server. How much? And they're like, how many users do you have? And I was like, mm-hmm. uh, this much. How much do you charge them? I'm like, well, this much. But, like, not everyone pays. What percentage pay? And you can see them, like, <laughs> multiplying in their head. And they're like, okay, we'll come back to you with a quote. And this is, like, the first time I dealt with commercial vendors and how it just felt so scammy and i was like oh you're just making up a price on the fly here and i just got so pissed but we had no option because like we were falling over so we paid them all this money which i forget what it was but it was like you know tens of thousands of dollars for something that was like okay it kind of worked but it wasn't like amazingly performant or anything this is like all pre-ssds and stuff anyway so even if your software is magic there's not much you can do if uh you know you have couple spinning disks inside this unit mm. or two i think we got a pair for like high availability reasons but so that's what led me to like go build a our mobile lfs which is an anagram of omg files but uh <laughs> it was our kind of our s3 like object store so you're creating all this all this tech which is now commonplace right um, yeah but- yeah so like <laughs> so that's the other reason like i kind of wanted to go do a startup like when i first joined google they had all this like you know, secret sauce like Borg and, you know, like their uh, like big table. And so there's this like amazing technology. So I wanted to go go to Google and see like how uh, the grownups like did distributed systems. <laughs> but now I feel like all the secret sauce is like out there and open source, but I've never had really a chance to use it like hmm. as a, uh, you know, like at Google I had access to it, but I wasn't like necessarily using it. I could just like use it if I wanted. And so I used it for like the go build system and stuff. But so this is kind of like my first company that I've got to do where uh, the cloud existed and mm. I can use all this like distributed system stuff for free. And it's great. We are like setting up our, uh, our proxy relays around the world for TailScale for the people who don't have direct connectivity for like, I don't know, four or 5% of connections. If we can't, penetrate the NAT on both sides, we uh, end up proxying the encrypted packets through our relays. And we're like, okay, yeah, let's just spin up some ones around the world. And we just got a bunch of $5 a month instances, like in all the regions around the world. And we're like, you know, doesn't take any time. That stuff used to be like, you know, downright impossible. So (laughs) it's, it's fun. Like I always knew that this stuff existed, but being able to use it for the first time is pretty, pretty fun. Yeah. It's nice to see that these things are becoming accessible, these technologies, which in the past, you like you had to just <laughs> create them, like Memcached, which we should definitely talk about more. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a kind of um, I think it's a great way also for projects to emerge. Like you say that uh, Memcached came out of the live journal stuff. It's that thing of solving real problems and having to, like you were saying, it's on fire. So you you have no choice. There are kind of imperative things you've got to solve these problems. I find some great tech comes out of those kinds of situations. Oh yeah. Do you like working in that sort of environment or do you do you prefer a more relaxed <laughs> where you can just take your time and design maybe? No, I, I need a certain amount of stress. I mean there's there's probably a limit, but uh if there's no stress at all, you know, then there's no the priority isn't so obvious. I, I don't do well when it's not obvious what the priority is. If I have like 20 things that are all kind of equal priority, but I know I'm only going to have time to do two of them today, mm. but it's just arbitrary which two of the 20 I pick. Then I'm like, why pick anything? 18 <laughs> of them aren't getting done. Like, why those two? So I, I like a certain amount of fire so I know what to do next. Uh. <laughs> now, do, do you like do you like the uh, sort of uh, um, the arbitrary stress like as, you know, say product teams in making arbitrary deadlines saying, hey, we need to have a conference on this date. So we need to build this tech by that date. Or do you prefer the more the stuff that's being driven by customer need, like basically needing to scale? 
Oh, the cu- customer needs for sure. Like seeing people react to things, um, you know, on Twitter or whatnot to like when you launch something, that's like way more um, motivating than some arbitrary deadline. I mean, if it's if it's getting things done for a conference demo or something, at least that date is real. But it's like if someone's, you know, doing a sprint and it's arbitrarily for like, you know, end weeks from now, I'm like, okay, why that Friday? Why that Thursday? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. then they make you complicit by going through that estimation exercise. And then it's like, well, I'm sorry, you said it was a four muffins. So <laughs> it's four muffins. I, I've actually never worked on a team that did any of that. So I'm, uh, I'm oh. kind of speaking blindly here. But I've, I've heard people kind of talk about it, but I don't really know the process. Mm. Oh, it's cool. It's basically abstract. You, you try and just have an abstract number, relative score for work. So in some ways, it's nice because like you can identify big pieces of work. Usually someone on the team will know that this is a big piece of work and they can talk about it. But the trouble is obviously, you know, it gets turned into d- dates and times and then suddenly, you know, we're all rushing. And <laughs> there's no reason, no really good reason for it. What's up, gophers? Are you looking for a way to instantly debug and troubleshoot your applications and services running in production on Kubernetes? That's a mouthful. Well, Pixie gives you a magical API to get instant debug data. And the best part is this doesn't involve changing code. There are no manual UIs. And all this lives inside Kubernetes. Pixie is an API which lives inside your platform, harvests all of your data that you need, and exposes a bunch of interfaces that you can ping to get data you need. Pixie is essentially like a decentralized Splunk. It's a programmable edge intelligence platform which captures metrics, traces, logs, and events without any code changes. And the team behind Pixie is working hard to bring it to market for broad use by the end of 2020, but I'm here to tell you how you can get your hands on the beta today. Links are in the show notes, so check them out so you can click through to the beta and their Slack community. Once again, links from the show notes, check them out, and look forward to Pixie Day coming soon. So obviously, well, I'm going to assume that you're using a lot of Go in your day-to-day work today. Oh, yeah. It's like 99% Go. Mm-hmm. We have a little smattering of other languages here and there. but. Mm-hmm. So before Go, um, as Carl asked in the, in the Go Time FM channel, what did you use primarily? I mean, I started off like uh, basic and C, but, you know, neither one. Basic, you hit limits pretty quickly, and C is, you know, not very fun. You know, it's like... It exists to do things when you need to use it, but I don't like enjoy writing in C. It just feels tedious. So uh, when I discovered Perl in like, I don't know, 93, 94 or something like this, it was like Perl 4 at the time. Uh, I was like, whoa, I can do things really quickly. But, you know, this was like also the language everyone at the time was doing like CGI scripts in too. So it was also like the language that let me do, you know, cool dynamic web stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I got like, I was very in the Perl community, like very involved and all of all of like live journal was pretty much all Perl except for little bits and pieces that needed to be C for performance reasons. So like you know memcache memcache D was originally in Perl, but you know it fell over within like a second, as kind of I suspected it would. Like <laughs> the prototype was in Perl, but then we quickly rewrote it in C. Um, so I, I love Perl, and then I never really jumped on like the Python or Ruby trains because they were just like not different enough from Perl for me to care. Like they had all the same kind of pros and cons they weren't much mm. better they were still like you know explode at runtime and you know no type checking <laughs> and like python and ruby were even slower than Perl, so performance wasn't a reason and like you know maybe the syntax was a little cleaner but like at that point i didn't care because i already knew Perl. Mm-hmm. and then i joined uh, google and they use you know lots of python c++ and java so i wrote in all these kind of out of necessity but didn't really love any of them. Like I worked on Android for a couple of years and wrote a lot of Java and a lot of like Google front ends were often in uh, Java and Google back ends were often in C++. I launched a service that was a whole mix of things, you know, it was like Java, C++, Sawzall, which was Google's like language for logs analysis, which Rob Pike worked on prior to Go. 
it was I kind of hated it, but uh, that's what everyone at Google wrote their uh, logs analysis in at the time. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they've migrated uh, offsaws all onto Go. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I was like never really excited about any of the Google languages. I just or I wrote them because I had to because there was no choice. And then um, I saw Go come out, and uh, I wasn't like I, I went to a bunch of the internal talks on Go, and I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, Google had a bunch of internal languages, and most of them were like so-so. So I was like mm-hmm. not super excited at the time. And I saw somebody in the like, had a question from the audience, like, does Go have uh, closures? You have first class functions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer was very like a very dismissive. No, we don't. You don't need them or something. And I was like, <laughs> well, okay. Like I, I'm out, you know, like Perl had them. And I had this book, uh, Higher Order Perl, that I really loved that taught me a lot of like, you know, what people probably would actually learn in Lisp in school or whatever. But uh, I never really had any exposure to it until that book. And so I was like totally in love with uh, higher order functions and stuff like that. But uh, so when Go didn't have it, I was like, I kind of wrote it off. And also I was like, I don't really want to invest much time in another Google internal language because I'll just leave Google at some point. I won't get to play with it anyway, and I won't get to use it for my personal projects. But then when they said they were um, open sourcing it, I was like, oh, I should look again. And then I noticed they had added closures in the meantime. I guess Russ Cox just like went in one day when uh, Ken Thompson was on vacation and like couldn't object. And (laughs) Russ just like added them. But, um, wow. Uh, Russ, no. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like Russ. Oh, wow. One of, the, one of the Russes. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, so then after that, I started just like uh, screwing around on it. I was like, I was spending like two and a half hours a day on the Google bus going back and forth between San Francisco and Mountain View. And I just had a lot of time to screw around on my laptop. And so I decided to, per keep, which at the time was uh, called Camly Store, was originally kind of a set of ideas and like kind of data structures of how I would want my personal life archiving storage system to work. But I like wasn't excited to write it because I didn't want to write it in Perl. Mm. I was sick of scripting languages. I didn't want to write it in C++ because that just didn't sound fun for like a personal project. <laughs> and so when the Go came out, I was like, well, you know, the best way to learn a language or learn anything new is to use it. So I was like, let's try to build this, uh, the storage system idea that I've had. Let's try to write that in Go. And, uh, you know, I found right away that the standard library was missing tons of stuff. So that's why I started sending in lots of changes. And uh, then one day, Rob Pike was like, hey, do you want to do this full time? <laughs> I was like, what? Work on a language full time? That sounds great. And it's open source. Don't have to don't have to feel bad about working for the, the mega corp on, you know, working on advertising. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's amazing. So again, a lot of those, a lot of those pieces of the standard library came out of things you needed. Oh yeah, yeah. I pretty much everything that I added to um, the standard library was because I needed it for per keep or some other personal project. Or sometimes people were complaining about it on a mailing list or something. But it was almost all my needs. Yeah. See, with that, I think that's that's why they resonate so well. Uh, Memcache, Memcache is an interesting one. Memcache D. Um, so that project was originally C, but there is a Go version, isn't there? Well, I mean, there's clients for like every language under the sun. So, oh, but the originals still C. Yeah, the, the server is still C. Ah, okay. I mean, I've written like, I've written server. I've re-implemented the server in uh, C++ inside Google. That's like what the um, the app engine. There's there's a version of Memcached inside Google that uh, is all based on Google's RPC system. You know, Stubby, which is all protocol buffers and stuff. That um, it's, it's kind of like gRPC basically, and uh, that's written in C++. But it's not. I mean, a memcached server is kind of like a good hello world network server. It's very simple, right? It's a it's a hash map hooked up to a get and set, mm. effectively. Well, that's kind of putting it lightly, but yeah, sure. Yeah, because they, <laughs> they synchronize. And... I mean, like the the only tricky part is uh, you want a really good memory allocator. Originally, we just used malloc, and we you know we'd work for like a week or sometimes like a few days, and then the CPU would go through the roof because we had all this internal fragmentation, and the memory allocator was finding like having a hard time finding a spot to put your memory of the right size, just searching all over. Um, so once we switched to a, a slab allocator, there was that like uh, that's. Solaris paper back in the day about uh, about slab classes and stuff, and uh, so we wrote a memory allocator inside uh, inside memcached that bypassed your system one and just like did its own malloc free and just it only asked the operating system for like you know one meg at a time and then cut up the one meg itself into size specific classes, and so that was like 
that's the only real trick inside memcached. But nowadays, all like the the normal libc memory allocators do similar things. So I see. So let's let's talk about that home cluster project you keep posting about. <laughs> <laughs> Why, first <Yeah>. of all? <laughs> so at one point, I, I I've gone back and forth between like I've always had computers at home. And I've, I've basically always had servers at home. But then at one point, I went like to full cloud. I was like, all my stuff was on the cloud. And I had VMs all over the place. And bandwidth costs were going up because, you know, the cloud charges you way too much for bandwidth and stuff. And I, I woke up one day kind of like realizing I didn't understand how computers worked anymore or like what computers cost or how fast they were because I was so disconnected from reality and I was always using this virtual stuff. So I wanted to like build my own server again. So... And I think about the same time I had an internet outage at my house because I forget what I was using for a gateway, but I had like two or three uh, gateway failures in a row where my, my router failed in my house. And it was super, super annoying. So I decided that my goal was going to build a high availability internet router that had no single points of failure. So I was like, well, I can't have one server. I need to have at least three because I need to like <laughs> have, you know, have quorum if one fails. And so I put, uh, first I started off with a, uh, VMware, because I was using it at work with ESXi, but I couldn't stand how corporate-y, enterprise-y the whole thing was. So I switched to uh, Proxmox. And so now I have just VMs that are just floating around, and I don't really know which VM is on which of the three nodes. And if one of the nodes dies, the VMs just float somewhere else. And I use uh, Ceph for storage, so like the storage is sprayed over all the three machines too. And I, have, I don't have to worry about where my block devices are all. They're all just highly available. And uh, my router isn't a physical piece, my router is just a Linux VM that floats around the machines too. So each one of those is plugged into, I have three switches and every machine is plugged into, well, I had two switches at first. So every machine is plugged into both switches and they're on different power supplies. And they have, you know, each of the three machines has two cables, you know, one to each switch. I have two ISPs and it doesn't like fail over between the ISPs. All the, the Wi-Fi in the house is all PoE powered from the switches that are on UPS. And so... The whole neighborhood could lose power and I would still have working <laughs> Wi-Fi for like an hour and a half. So this is kind of like, I did this kind of like to learn how servers worked again and, uh, you know, stop being so dependent on the cloud. But uh, of course, I always build these like two complicated setups and I forget how they work. And then I, I have our second child and uh, then I don't look at it for a year and all my certs expired the other day. And then all my home automation stopped working because my etcd cluster was a uh, was down and all the cert and I, I couldn't renew the certs because to renew the certs it needed to talk to the cluster or something and uh, <laughs> I don't know that the whole thing's just screwed so I want to nuke it and uh, start over. <laughs> you need some observability, man. So now I'm looking at like you know do I want to use Flatcar Linux like the CoreOS continuation project or do I want to use like K3s or maybe I just want to use Podman and I'm so kind of like debating all my options now to build like a more simple <laughs> thing to run containers at my house. It's much easier to just do it in the cloud. <laughs> I could, but like, yeah. I want to have jobs that are like connecting to uh, security cameras and stuff and doing motion detection on on live video. And if I did that over the internet connection, then like the bandwidth cost of the cloud would be stupid. Hmm. Right, right, right. And you know, once I have some jobs running here, I might as well run all the jobs here. <laughs> you know, this this sounds like uh, uh, the typical. Oh, I needed to blog more, so I wrote a blog engine. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that, that's, how, that's how people stop blogging. They're like, I'll start my blog again once I rewrite my blog engine. And then they never rewrite their blog engine because they never blog. <laughs> that's where I'm at. I see a question on the, uh, the Slack. How do I mm -hmm. feel about Perl 6? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not called Perl 6 anymore. What is it called? Rakuda or something? Or? Oh, really? What? How uh, come? Uh, they renamed it because they... I think the Perl 5 oh, people were feeling hurt. There's some story. <laughs> yeah, there's oh. some there's some drama about that. Perl 5 people were feeling like they were uh, they were deprecated if there was a Perl with a greater number. Well, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, and also I think it's called Raku now. Mm -hmm. Is it a different uh, team or something then? Uh, I don't know. I think it's... Oh, there's probably some people still staying there, but... Mm. I mean, it's been going on forever now, right? I mean, it, ha it has some fun stuff, and I occasionally... Um, I mean, I, I read like some of the news things that come out, the summaries of where it's at whenever I see one pop up on the internet somewhere, but uh, I haven't used it, but I kind of, I've read some of their um, design docs. It's, you know, it has some cute stuff. So I bring it up sometimes in uh, the Go 
proposal review meetings where I half joke that we should adopt something from Perl 6. Like I was saying, uh, <laughs> Perl 6 has the dot, dot, dot operator, which I, they call like the yada, yada, yada operator or something. And it's like, <laughs> it's like a to-do, which it's a valid code. You put it in there. And so I said that in, in Go, we should make dot, dot, dot as a statement, just be basically be a panic. So if you're not done writing a function yet or a method, you could say dot, 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 and it would compile and it would run. But if it ever executed that line, it would panic and say, you know, to do dot, dot, dot encountered. Mm-hmm. It would make it would make a demo code on slides really cool. You know, like, it would be like syntactically correct code that fits on a slide. It'd be nice if it just ended. You know, the program just quit? Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, it's <laughs> the end of the example. It's like returning from... Oh, I thought you meant like it would just do like OSX at zero and be like, okay, dot, 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 we're done. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> uh, maybe. That'd work. So we have another question here from uh, Lewis. Uh, worse bug... Uh, or feature written in Go by you? Uh, the my multi-part package, it took us like five tries to get that right. Um, mm. Me and uh, Andrew Durand wrote it originally when he was in San Francisco. And I don't know, like we had gone out to brunch in the morning before we made it. So we, like we've always blamed the mimosas for like the <laughs> poor quality. Yeah. But um, it must have been something else because that, it was really bad for a while. We just kept finding bugs in it. But I think it's pretty solid now. But whenever I see that package, I kind of cringe, and I'm like, "All oh, right, uh, that one." Yeah, it's a complicated thing, but the the interface is is simple. Was did yeah. that evolve over time? No, Would no, I mean, we can't we can't change the interfaces. Oh, I see. <laughs> you mean this was for the V1 release, even? Uh, pretty much. I mean, it was early enough that uh, it basically didn't change. It was just the implementation that was tricky to get right. Well, thanks for doing it though, because we we can just use that now, and it works. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. until people find bugs and edge cases in it, but yeah, it mostly yeah. That's all right. <laughs> Can't worry about that, can you, too much? <laughs> How do you feel about sort of... Uh, so there's there's always this back and forth between um, certain community members around sort of uh, um, adding new features to Go, right? And the hot new thing right now is sort of the debate going on with uh, uh, the uh, generics proposal, right? So which kind of seems like, you know, it's, it's, it's on its way in, right? I'm, I'm curious how you, how you feel about sort of uh, introducing these kinds of features in Go. And do, do you also share the sort of the, the feeling that, okay, Go is kind of, you know, good enough as is, right? And introducing these things is going to add necessary complexity. Like, where do you stand on that? I'm pro-generics for sure. I know, I know there's some community division on this, but I think uh, it will help. I mean, there there will people will abuse it because people abuse anything, and there will mm-hmm. be bits and pieces of code here and there that are disgusting. But I think by and large, it'll make uh, it'll it'll make most code more readable. Maybe some of the implementations of these things, like if someone makes like a some generic data structures, it might be really hard to read some of this code. But like most of the code that you're reading that uses these packages, like you know, uses some tree type or some hash map type should be better code than exists today. There should be fewer uh, empty interfaces and stuff like that. So I, I think that'll be good. I'm still disappointed in how air handling turned out. And it seems like the whole Go team has kind of given up on trying to address air handling at this point because it's just all the previous efforts have kind of failed. And it was it was so hard to get those previous air handling proposals out and they were so poorly received. And I feel like they just don't want to try anything at this point because... There's no ideas. Nobody has any new ideas, and it's so contentious in the community that like nobody has the energy to just deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. I, I kind of think that Go's popularity, you know, it helps being, you know, helps it be more popular. But I think it hurts in that uh, it's now too hard to change the language because there's just too many vocal opinions out there. Mm-hmm. And so, like in the early days, Go could change quickly because nobody cared. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Go One compatibility thing is a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. It's a blessing for us as users of it. Yes and no. I mean, like, mm. if we were allowed to, like, change the standard library and make it, like, clean and consistent, then you wouldn't see these, like, three or four generations of styles in the standard library, right? We could put context everywhere, or we could, you know, build context into the language and then make it implicit or something. Mm. Just do a Perl 6 and make a new language <laughs> well. with a different name. <laughs> Well, yeah, we see how well that worked out for like Python 3 and Perl 6, right? Mm. So in in practice, these things don't work. Like Ian wrote a whole document about like all the languages and the successful ones are the ones that don't nuke the world and start over. So Mm. 
you got to find a way to do it iteratively. How do you manage sort of uh, your modules? Uh, that's another point of contention within within the Go community, right? So, like, basically, how do we manage that the introduction of Go modules and, and sort of the semantic import versioning and all that stuff? Like, I'm curious how what, what you feel about it, if anything, right? Do you just say, okay, well, you know, we're gonna be at V1 forever because we don't want to have a V2, or how do you how do you treat that? <laughs> well, it's easier to be at V0 forever. Then you don't have any mm, rules, right? So never release. <laughs> is your yeah. Advice. Yeah, it works. You'd be happier. I mean, it depends who your audience is. Like, if you're writing stuff for yourself, it's easier to just stay at V0 forever, for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I honestly haven't had to deal with uh, doing any of the V2 stuff. So I, I see a lot of people complaining about the semantic import versioning. And I could probably believe it, but I just haven't used it enough to feel the pain. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, my packages um, just stay simple that <laughs> i don't have a version two crickets don't worry about the silence brad you don't have to feel bad uh after i say <laughs> a joke it's okay to for it to just be an awkward silence <laughs> because they cut it out you see <laughs> you, you hope <laughs> i hope <laughs> What's up, Gophers? Do you have an app in production that's slower than you like? Of course you do. I know. But seriously, is the performance of your apps all over the place, sometimes fast, sometimes slow? Do you even know why? Well, with Datadog, you will. You can troubleshoot your app's performance with end-to-end tracing, and in one click, correlate those Go traces with related logs and metrics. You can also use Datadog's detailed flame graphs to identify bottlenecks and latency in your apps. Start tracking the performance of your apps today with a free trial at datadog.com slash go time. And here's a bonus. If you sign up for a trial and install the agent, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. That's a nice bonus. Once again, datadog.com slash go time. Well, it's that time again. I think it's time for Unpopular Opinions. I was hard pressed to think of one, but then I just saw this uh, Twitter discussion going by again where I feel like every year or so, there's like a Twitter fight about whether HTML is a real programming language or not, within real in quotes. <laughs> and like, you know, all these people fight about it, and it doesn't seem like too worth fighting about it. You know, one camp is like, oh, it doesn't have conditions, you know, it's really just a markup language, not a programming language. And other camp is like, no, don't belittle new people that are just getting started, you should encourage them. But like, I, I'm kind of pretty firmly in the camp that it's not a real programming language, but that doesn't matter. You're still a nerd, like typing stuff into a computer. And like, <laughs> once you're typing nerdy, arbitrary stuff into a computer, it's not a small jump at that point. It's like right. a tiny step towards learning a real programming language that has if. So <laughs> I don't know. Mm. But I only thought of that because I just saw it again going by. And uh, it seems like, you know, sacrilegious to say that HTML is not a real programming language, but I will say it. <laughs> that's definitely uh gonna get your wikipedia paid trashed yeah yeah totally <laughs> and they'll, they'll probably do it using html they're all you're all my nerd friends even if you just do html you're still a nerd yeah it's okay i think that's it that's the nice thing because that's what people mean isn't it they're moaning that yeah we're saying we're belittling these these noobs that are learning uh just html bless them yeah are you a real programmer if you only do html yeah, it's like there's so much identity associated with that, you know? Mm. Yeah, so any any others? Um, Johnny, you haven't given one for ages, mate. Well, that's because I haven't been around for ages, remember? Like, I haven't been around for like three or four shows, man. Yep. <laughs> someone someone <laughs> asked. So you admit it's it. Like, yep. so, do, so do one. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. Like, sounds like Brett wanted to add some flavor. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I'll question Go by. If, if I wanted to remove something from Go, what would I remove? Ooh. I, I think I would remove complex numbers. Mm. Ooh, say more. I think I filed a proposal about this a while back. Because it turns out nobody uses them. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone does use them, I think I think we should have like uh, operator methods instead so you can define complex numbers as a type and still be able to use like, you know, normal math operators on them with like the usual precedence. You know, and then maybe oh, some yeah. of the, uh, the go num people would be happy too. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, I've never used it. I think you might be right. I don't know who uses it. I just stick to simple numbers. I stay away from the complex ones. Don't need them. I think I think that the legend goes that like Ken Thompson was very convinced that any modern language needed them because some other language had them. So they added them, but then no one uses them. So hmm. I don't know. That's so interesting that it's sort of per- very personal kind of opinions that end up, you know, they they lead to decisions that that then now because Go's grown so much, we sort of see at scale. So it's it's really interesting hearing about some of those little just discussions that people have and it turns into something into the into the language that we then all are using every day. Or not using. <laughs> or not using it. It's all it's all I mean, it's kind of all personal preference, right? I mean if, if someone says, okay, well, you know, any mo- sufficiently modern programming language needs to have complex numbers one could make the same argument for generics, right? Well, it wasn't generics yeah. part of the V1, right? So it's, yeah, it's preference at the end of the day. But yeah, I mean, I have to agree. I've never used them. I think it's you have to be doing some, like a, a particular kind of work to need them, right? Uh, yeah, but someone was telling me that uh, even the people that typically need them, there's faster ways to do it without them or something. So like hmm. a lot of people working in the math fields where you would think that they would make sense, don't. What was it like? Uh, re- rendering like the Mandelbrot set is always like a classic example of when you need it, and then people were like, "Well, actually, there's faster <laughs> ways to do the Mandelbrot set without them." Blah blah blah. So, <laughs> oh well, that doesn't sound like people on the internet. <laughs> Apparently, I say GIF or GIF wrong. Oh yeah, I meant to come back to that. So yeah, <laughs> I have was a it, bone to pick like, with you. <laughs> I, if I recall, like one of the specs actually had the pronunciation in the spec, and it was it was Jeff, wasn't it? Don't know. Well, um, well, I mean. Johnny, this could be a new regular part of the show where we <laughs> yeah. make a jingle and we'll do GIF versus GIF. Just find out. Yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've gone back and forth, honesty and. I don't know. I guess today I'm feeling like GIF, but <laughs> I didn't know it had it in the spec. That that that, that yeah. changes things. The, it? the the spec was called like you know GIF eighty nine dot text or something like all caps. You know like mm. and now, now I'm trying to find it. But how did it spell it? <laughs> <laughs> you just read it like that, bro. It just says it's pronounced G I F. Yeah, it's not in the eighty nine A spec. <laughs> I can't believe we're doing this. this. Is like what I thought a podcast with Brad would turn into. It's not enough, but Oh man, you know. Oh, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll get back to you. I I'm sh- I'm sure about this, but you know, memory. <laughs> and so I just want to tell us quickly about Tailscale, because I'm aware of this, but I'd love to hear a bit more about it. Yeah, so I mean, um we, we don't have a great elevator pitch, which is maybe a problem for a company, but uh Private it's, network's made easy. Yeah, that works. So we're reluctant to call it a VPN because VPN has all these like kind of different meanings to different people because people hate their corporate VPNs and they hate, you know, the personal VPNs are often very shady, you know, like people trying to hide their IP address while they're downloading, you know, torrents or something like that. And the company right. is really <laughs> logging all their stuff and reselling it. So it's like, um, so yeah, VPNs are kind of like, uh, people have lots of opinions about that term and we're kind yeah. of a VPN um, but instead of like proxying or sending all your stuff and encrypting it to like a hub and spoke it's all kind of like it. basically you put TailScale on all your devices and then they join a network together and then so all your devices can reach all of each other so they get a, a new IP address that is your TailScale IP address and then anything with TailScale then can contact anything else with TailScale you know for your network that you create and all wire guard to each other. And it does peer-to-peer, so it won't like go through our servers. 
and it'll it'll get through all your gnats and stuff. So it'll all do the gnat traversal and all the firewall punching tricks. Um, and if like you know something like a couple percent of uh, connections that can't penetrate the gnat end up getting proxied through relays, we run. But you know we can't see the traffic. We're just moving UDP packets around that are all WireGuard encrypted already, and we don't have the keys. So it's fun. It's like networking gets uh, stupid easy at that point because you get a connection and you know by its IP address exactly who it is. So you can do like old school host-based authentication again. You don't have to like deal with like, you know, cookies or logins or whatever. It's like, you know exactly which device and user that connects to you. So, So, you know, companies are um, replacing their uh, corporate VPNs with this. And uh, I don't know, kind of great. Yeah. Right. And it'll it'll find the shortest path. So if you have like you know, your office is split between like the West Coast and East Coast, and your employees are roaming around back in the days when employees could roam around and take flights and stuff, you would uh you would just connect via the shortest path, and you wouldn't like bounce around the country, you know, proxying packets around. So mm. does it use the packages from the standard library then? Or oh yeah, pretty much. To... Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's certainly things we've had to write, but uh, it uses a lot of the standard library. Yeah, and mm. Pretty much all of our code is open source. The um, the GUIs for like Windows and iOS are not open, for instance. But like, you can run it in like Homebrew or whatever on Macs and stuff, just without the GUI. Very cool. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes for anyone interested in checking that out. Yeah, it's fun being able to like use Go rather than just work on Go itself. So mm. yeah, I've definitely like found some parts of the standard library I'd never used before. I was like, oh, perfect, this exists. I never even knew about it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, do you miss it? Do you miss like working on the Go project like at Google, like sort of more officially or is, has nothing changed for you? Well, I mean, I definitely ignore a lot more bugs than I used to because <laughs> now it's not my job to like stay on top of a lot of things. But I, I've still mm. been going to um, the proposal review meetings. So in that sense, I'm still involved. So I think I'm the first non-Googler to be part of the proposal review meetings now. <laughs> Oh, mm. congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you think they'll listen to you if you if you disagree with something or propose something? That yeah, strongly... they're, they're, not, they're not very contentious meetings. So, I mean, kind of by definition, things go in once they've had consensus. So, if, you know, if anyone disagrees with something and is like, you know, has a strong opinion, everything kind of stops while people figure out why someone has a strong opinion about something. Mm. So, Yeah. Be interesting to listen into one of those meetings, Brad. Would you be willing to wear a white? <laughs> <laughs> could, could ask, ask Russ. That could be a good way to get kicked off of him. But, <laughs> I don't know. Like, we have discussed at times, um, you know, like making them open or broadcast or recorded somehow. Hmm. Um, but it's more of a logistics issue. But uh, I suppose we should revisit that. Because mm. it, it it does feel like a little bit of a sort of behind closed doors kind of kind of discussion, right? For something that affects the entire community, um, you know, I'm not saying that, not putting that sort of dark cloud on it, but it just if it's like closed and the you know the decisions made during during that meeting are the start of of new directions, it could feel like that for some. Yeah, so we 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 did change the the procedure uh, a few months back, where so now there's notes, there's minutes kept for all of them, and no decision is made in a single meeting. So it now takes two weeks or a month, depending on the type of issue. And we announce our decisions ahead of time. And only once a whole meeting has gone by with like no new data and uh, an assumed direction has already been picked, like this is uh, like tentatively accepted or tentatively declined. Then once another week goes by with no new input, then we say, okay, marking it accepted, marking it approved. So if you're not in the meeting, you still know that the decision is coming and it gives you a chance to object and like to raise new information. So we stole this uh, from the Rust community who had a blog post about how it works in their community. Mm-hmm. It has some name, but I'm forgetting the name now. It's called like No New Information or something like that. Hmm. That's an interesting title for a thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably screwing it up. That's all right. But they, they, they aren't deaf to the, um, or they aren't, ignoring the community they still like feeds feedback from the community still feeds into those meetings doesn't it oh i mean the the community or that the meetings are entirely in response to issues filed by the community i mean occasionally one of us will file our own issue that then we discuss but uh 
And in the past, they've been pretty good about trying to bow out of the kind of the voting or discussion on things they've done themselves. Like, I forget which proposal it was, but a while back, Russ filed a big proposal and he kind of recused himself from the decision making on it. He's like, I don't want to look like I'm just approving my own thing. <laughs> That's very honorable of him. <laughs> he's, a, he's an honorable chap. He is, yeah. So have you introduced your um, your kids to, to programming yet? Uh, someone from the Slack channel wants to know. Oh, uh, my uh, <laughs> my older one is three and the younger one is one. So it's not quite there. Might be a little tad bit early. In a couple of years, yeah. Could start them off with Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been debating a lot what, what I'm going to do when the time comes. You know, it has to be like engaging enough, uh, you know, has to be contemporary somehow. Like mm. I don't think giving him a Apple II terminal would be quite so exciting. Lego <laughs> might be fun. Lego, you know, the little turtle graphics is always fun. If I had a kid, I would bring it up kind of in the same time scale that I brought up. So, you know, it'd have a <laughs> spectrum first. Do you know what I mean? Like it can learn on that. And just because I don't think kids appreciate how good technology is. <laughs> and you know what I mean? There's a guy online. He said when his kid reached a certain age, he could have a certain video game console. And I think he got him every one that had ever come out in order. And he made him them use it for like six months or something. So he could play like Pong or whatever with like the little, <laughs> little silly paddle thing for like six months. And then he could advance to the 8-bit games and like, the, you know, the Sega. And the, and so he could like see progressions of like decades of, of game consoles getting better. That's brilliant. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's great. It's basically my idea, but with some level of commitment. Yeah. <laughs> Which is obviously... <laughs> yeah, like, you know, finding all these machines that still work on eBay or whatnot seems like a challenge. Yeah, but it's so fun. It's funny, I'm I'm quite nostalgic for that old tech. I, I actually miss when computers were rubbish, you know? I, I miss the time when the computers were just, like, terrible graphics, uh, really slow. I mean, I'm kind of nostalgic for those times, that's all. They also, I mean, computers used to be faster in a lot of ways. <laughs> Applications used to be faster than web things are today. Hmm. Yeah, we don't, we don't care anymore. We just say, hey, just throw some, you know, um, SSDs at it or something. <laughs> was that, there was a person a while back who analyzed uh, keyboard input latency from old machines to modern machines and just showed how, like, computers nowadays, you hit a key and the, the time it takes to show up and gmail or whatnot is uh, takes forever oh really yeah it's, you know <laughs> keyboard <laughs> latency funny. display latency operating system latency yeah that's funny yeah i think uh, yeah it, it'll be well along those lines you know about teaching teaching kids to learn to appreciate tech it, it'll be kind of hard to say here um child of mine carry around this rotary dial phone before i can give you a smartphone right it might be hard <laughs> to go to school with that but you know yeah but at least make them have a landline now for a bit first. And then <laughs> be like, right, now, watch so, this. And you can cut the wire. <laughs> and it was just, a, it, all along, it was just an iPhone sellotaped to an old phone. And you're like, look at this. We blow the tiny minds. We did that, <laughs> I think. So I, I found a landline recently, and I was like, oh, I want to make this do silly things again. And I, I used to do silly things with asterisk back in the day, like, you know, controlling... Um, a little PCI card that like did the tone or whatever and made phones ring. And so I went to like look at Asterisk again after not using it in almost 20 years. And I was like, oh, it's basically the same. Some things are kind of changed. And I found some blog posts that was like the history of like how this AGI, this Asterisk gateway interface, which is like CGI for phones or whatever, how it changed over time. And there were three generations of things like the AGI and then something else. And now they have ARI. And uh, it was kind of like a, well, these were the mistakes that were made and here's what we learned over time. And it was kind of cool to see a project that felt like I just used yesterday, but it had really been 20 years. And I found this retrospective <laughs> post about like, yeah, we made all these changes. And I was like, wow, it's kind of cool <laughs> to watch a project and fast forward like that. I mean, yeah, fast forward. That's it. You could fast forward the kids as well. It could be like, <laughs> right, you've been good this week. So now suddenly 64, 64K. You know what I mean? It's like, good, good boy. You get more memory. You get more. You get more <laughs> graphics. Yeah, uh, graphics cards now exist. You know, just like milestones in tech as rewards for kids. I don't know. I mean, uh, I just thought of it today, but I, I am going to get a domain name as soon as I can for it. <laughs> the first step. All right. 
so this has been pretty epic and pretty fun. Uh, it's been a, a great joy and a pleasure having you on the show, um, Brad, and, and, uh, and great participation from our folks in the GoTime FM Slack channel as well. Uh, hopefully they've gotten all their questions answered and uh, we're going to see some updates on your Wikipedia um, page very soon here. <laughs> yeah, that GIF and GIF thing. I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> anyways, it was a pleasure having you and uh, uh, we'll see you next time on the GoTime podcast sounds good thanks comment on this and every episode of go time on changelog.com there's a discussion link in your show notes for easy click-ins we would love to hear from you and don't forget to follow the show on twitter we are at gotimefm this episode was hosted by johnny borsico with matt ryer it was produced by myself, Jared Santo, and our music is provided by the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. Shout out to all of our longtime sponsors. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Mark Bates is back on the panel next week, and they're talking all about teaching Go, so stay tuned for that. 